Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. It's good to see you this morning. You too. <laughs> we got one. All right. Matthew chapter 15. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. What is heaven's supply chain management process? How does heaven function logistically? Let me, let me ask another way. How does God get all that good stuff about who He is and what He secured for us from heaven to earth. Now you might say, well, Jesus came down. He was God in human flesh. Well, you're right. You're not wrong. But is Jesus bodily here now? No. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where He's waiting and He will return one day. So, I ask again, what is heaven's supply chain? What is the logistics that heaven uses, that God uses to get Him, His presence, His blessings, His benefits from heaven to earth, from the throne to your heart? The last couple of weeks in Matthew, we've been talking about some really good stuff, amen? We've been talking about how God in Jesus Christ came to show us that He can save us with grace and power. We talked about how He is gracious to us even in our failings, how He shows us immeasurable kindness to us, that God is gracious and kind and loving and, and caring so that kindness, that grace, who He is, how does that get from heaven to earth? In other words, think of it this way. What is the pipeline that God uses? What is the instrument that God has given for us to get all that good stuff? Where do we plug in? What, what plug, what pipe can we use to get from that good stuff from heaven to earth? Well, our text this morning answers that very question. And it answers the question in a way that is so beautiful for us to consider. When we look in Matthew chapter 15, we see the account of Jesus exercising a demon, removing a demon from someone in a way that we might not expect and Matthew's first readers might have been shocked to read. When we get to Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 through 28, we find that there is this great act of kindness, but it also answers the question of how do we get all that good stuff, the goodness of God and God himself. Look at verse 21. It says, when Jesus left there, he withdrew and went to an area of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you know anything about those areas, in just the previous chapters before, Matthew compares and Jesus compares Tyre and Sidon to be very ungodly places. 
So Jesus is not, number one, avoiding the ungodly places. In the first century, many Pharisees, and it's interesting, this comes right after his encounter with the Pharisees. The Pharisees would tell you to avoid Tyre and Sidon at all costs. If you must go near there, walk on the beach. So literally, they would say, like, get as close to the water as you can and go around. What does Jesus do? He left there and he withdraws to that area. So not only is there an ungodly place that Jesus is now in, but notice it says in verse 22, and just then a Canaanite woman. Now notice Matthew is a Jew, and I think he's writing to people who came out of uh, Jew, the Jewish life. They were Jews who had believed that Jesus is the Messiah. So when they hear Canaanite woman, their senses are going off. Their Old Testament receptors are going off because you remember the Canaanites were the ancient enemies of Israel, right? Israel went in and waged war against the Canaanites of the land. God told them, I will displace the Canaanites and you will inherit this land. You remember that, right? So when you hear Canaanite, and when the first readers, the first Jewish readers hear that, they think that's, that's the them, right? Those are our old enemies. Those are the ungodly. They're not, they're not Jews. They're not part of the covenant people of God. They're not part of Israel, they are Gentiles. So now we have this Gentile Canaanite woman from that ungodly region. But notice she's crying out. And what is she crying out? Verse 22, she says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. So although she's not Jewish and although she doesn't live in the most reputable part of the country and in, a, in an unreputable region... She has very, very deep spiritual insight into who Jesus is. Notice the messianic language, the, the, the insight she has. First of all, she pleads for mercy. And this phrase that she used, have mercy on me, Lord, all of those in, in the original in the Greek, they echo the Psalms. In many of the Psalms where people are pleading to Yahweh for help. Help me, Lord. So here is this Canaanite woman using language from the Psalms that's usually in, in used to address Yahweh, and she's using it to talk to Jesus. But not only that, what does she call him? Son of David. So she has this insight that Jesus is not only God, but that he's the promised son of David. He's the David that the Jews have been waiting for. He's the Messiah. So she recognizes this. And she says, my daughter is severely tormented by a demon. And that language, severely tormented, is very strong. This is not, this is not light torment. I don't know if you can have light torment. That's kind of an oxymoron. But, you know, this, this is not like the dripping faucet kind of torment. right? This is severe. Matthew's emphasizing that this young lady... This daughter of this woman is undergoing tremendous, tremendous torment by a demon. Now, if we stop right there. Pretend you don't know what's coming next. Pretend that you didn't just glance down after I said stop right there. Okay. What do you think you would expect to happen? Jesus hears this great need... 
And because there is this great need, he automatically says, where do you need me? What do we find? Verse 23, Jesus did not say a word to her. Now, that might bother you. But I think it's helpful to think of it in several ways. Number one, I want you to understand that sometimes when you plead for something, you ask for something from God and he doesn't answer the first time. When we understand what happens in the rest of the story, it's not because he doesn't hear. And it's not because he doesn't care. And I think it's safe for us to say we've all gone through moments in life where we're going through something that is severely traumatic, is severely painful, it is severely tormenting, and we plead for God to do something, and we don't hear anything. Jesus does not say a word to us. We, we feel like we just said, we just saying, draw me close to you. Why would we say that? Because we feel like he's a million miles away, right? But why does Jesus do that? Well, we'll find out in the rest. But, but another thing I want you to see, let's just be realistic, okay? Could Jesus meet every need that was on the planet while he walked on the planet? Okay, I know some of you are saying, yes, he could because he's God, right? That's true. But think about this. Aren't there times where Jesus withdraws just to pray? Couldn't he have been healing people? Couldn't he have been going? I mean, he can obviously make bread and fish multiply. Couldn't he just been going around 24-7 feeding people nonstop? So it's not unusual for Jesus to... to under, he knows all the needs, but when we read the life of Jesus... As a man walking this earth, we have to understand that there's a lot that he's not addressing, right? So that's the second way to look at it. But then there's another thing, I think, that comes, that comes to my mind, and it comes to my mind because I have children. Uh, and you've dealt with children, and you've, you've dealt with people. It's not just children, really. It's adults. Have you ever been asked for something one time, and you said, no, nah, I don't think so, and then they never ask again? No, I'm, I'm being, that's not sarcasm. Like, I, I understand how you might think that's what I'm asking. But, but sometimes people ask for something. And you, you say, well, not right now. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they go on their way. Right? They didn't really want it. Right? If they had really wanted it, wouldn't they keep asking? Wouldn't they have said, well, how can I make this happen? Or, you know, it just, it happens. People ask for things and they ask one time and they don't really want it there's no there's no there's no testing there and so I, I think Jesus is testing this woman's faith and it's instructive for us right it's instructive for the disciples because what do what does it say it says she came and she was crying out now that language of crying out it, it's repeated she kept crying out she's crying out over and over again so she didn't just say it once she's saying it over and over again she is pleading with Jesus he doesn't answer her but then look at the disciples in verse 23 it says they approached him and said send her away because she's crying out after us so the disciples are trying to figure out what do we do here do we help this lady? Do we send her away? What does Jesus want us to do? So they come to Jesus and they say, send her away because she keeps crying out. If you're not going to do anything, send her away. But then notice what it says. He replied. Now, what's interesting about this is a lot of the commentaries debate who he replies to. 
The text doesn't tell us. Is he replying to the disciples? Is he replying to the woman? Is he replying to both? We don't know. But look at what he says. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus has not only not answered her at this point, but it's most likely that he's addressing the disciples and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what does she do in response to that? Verse 25, she came, knelt before him, and said, Lord, help me. So not only has she used her spiritual insight that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, but now she comes and she worships him. She falls down before him after he's just said, I'm here to help the house of Israel, a.k.a. not you. Right? You're not in the house of Israel. So he says, I came to to send, uh, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she comes and kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. Praying that same prayer of the Psalms. So now Jesus answers her. And what does he say? He says, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now stop right there. You'll hear a lot of times people, not a lot of, not certain stripes of folk will say here Jesus is using a slur or he's using a he's calling her a name that's very offensive almost something to like a a racial slur or something like that that's please okay what you need to understand is when Jesus says this he uses a word there is a word that is an offensive word to refer to dog, and it refers to feral dogs, wild dogs. But, but this word that's used here is like the house pet. It's like the house pet. And Jesus is saying, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And what is he saying here? He's saying, as you think about this, your family gathers at the table and you only have enough food, right? Let's say you only have enough food to feed you and your child. Is it right to take food from that child and give it to the dog? Nobody in their right mind would say yes. Make your child go hungry and without food in order to feed the family pet. Now if you disagree with me, come talk to me afterwards and I will pray for you. All right. But Jesus uses a very logical argument. Nobody would disagree with it. And notice, she doesn't disagree with it. Because what does she say in verse 27? Yes, Lord, that's true. It makes perfect sense that you make sure the children of the house are fed first before you feed the dog. But then notice what she says. And yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table you talk about gutsy (laughs) she thinks this is God and he has just said it's not right to do this and then she says yes Lord yet I mean think about that the the, not the audacity but but the the courage the the willingness to even respond to that. And she says, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And is she not right? Jesus 
now, I think, not that he didn't know, but, but having tested her, having seen the genuineness of her plea, replies to her, he says this, Woman, your faith is great. What is it that she displays in this whole scene? Faith. And because of her great faith, Jesus says, let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Now, your translation may say from that hour, but you've got to understand when, G- when Matthew talks about in that hour, that's, that's the smallest unit of measurement they have at that time. G- Matthew is saying it happened like that. That hour, from that moment, her daughter was healed. There's a lot of things I've been called in my life. There's a lot of ways I've been described. I've been described as, not now, but athletic. I was in high school, playing soccer, athletic. I've been described by delusional people as being smart. Amen. Um, I've never been called a good golfer, never will be. There's a lot of ways I've been described, but there's a way, there are ways I hope I'll be described when it's all said and done. You know, I hope I'll be described as a good dad, a good husband, a good pastor. I hope and I wonder, and maybe we all ought to wonder would we be described as man, woman, your faith is great? Your faith is great. What is it that gets the blessings of God, who He is and what He's done for us from heaven to earth? This Canaanite Pagan woman living in an ungodly territory shows us it is by faith. When we talk about our salvation and we talk about the benefits that we get, we say that we are saved by grace alone, what? Through faith alone. What Matthew has been doing this whole time is creating within us a desire to have all those things. And then he says, and it can be yours if you have faith. If you have faith. What is the pipeline that gets it from heaven to earth? It's faith. It's faith. And now here, I want us to turn a little bit this morning and examine what we mean by faith and what this text instructs us, okay, about faith. Number one, notice who demonstrates this great faith. It is a pagan Canaanite woman. You, you would be hard-pressed to find a lesser ideal candidate for this lesson. And I think the takeaway is, if this woman can receive the blessings of God, receive the healing, receive the mercy, receive that which she asked for by faith, then every single one of us has that same hope here this morning. Because listen, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. 
Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter what your status is. Doesn't matter your, your socioeconomic status. The name you have. None of it is based on you. If she can get it by faith, you can get it by faith. That means it is for every single one of you here this morning. Salvation by grace, by God's kindness alone, through faith alone, can be yours. And it is yours. The blessings of God Himself giving you Himself and His benefits are yours by faith. So, that's the first aspect I want us to think about. But then let's talk about what faith is. What do we mean by faith? And it's here I want to turn you to something that has been tremendously helpful for me. And it's not original to me. But when we talk about faith, and specifically about saving faith, what is it that is the kind of faith that we're talking about here? Normally, in reform circles, reform theology, we talk about three aspects or three parts to saving faith. And if you want to write this down, you could write it as an acrostic. Cat, K-A-T, cat, K-A-T. The first one is knowledge. Saving faith, the kind of faith we're talking about, starts with knowledge. It's the facts. You have to know the facts. Biblical faith is not ignorant faith. Biblical faith is a faith that knows the facts. It knows that Jesus is God's son. It knows that we're sinners. It knows the facts necessary for salvation. It knows that Jesus died on a cross and knows that Christianity claims that he rose again. So there's knowledge. You have to understand the basic facts to know what you're believing in. So there's knowledge, but then there's assent. This is A. Assent. A-S-S-E-N-T, not A-S-C-N-T. We're not talking about going up. Assent means to accept as true. It's one thing to know the facts. It's another thing to assent to them and say, those are true and those are truths by which I need to align my life. So it's one thing to know that Christianity claims that we're all sinners, that we're all separated from God, that Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment we deserved, rose again on the third day. It's one thing to know that Christianity claims that. It's another thing to say, that is true and that has implications for me. If that's the straight line, I'm looking at my life and it needs to get in line with this straight line and this truth. So there's knowledge. There's assent. But then the third one is trust. Trust. Saving faith. This kind of faith is trusting faith. The way that I try to emphasize this to you every Sunday is by using words like rest, receive, trust. All three of those point you to outside of yourself. All three of those force us to realize that we when we believe, when we're expressing faith, the kind of faith that we're saved by is a faith that is resting in something outside of ourselves. That your salvation was accomplished by Christ and so you rest in that. You trust in that. You receive that. 
It's all passive. It's given to you. You receive it. You can't modify it. You can't improve it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You simply receive it. It's there. And faith says, I, I receive it. I, 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 I rest in that. I, there's nothing left for me to do. Right? Now you might say, Jason, that sounds like we're saved because we have faith. That's true. Jason, it sounds like you're saying that if we just receive, if we reach out and grab, if we, if we, if we do something like resting, like that's, that's something that we have to do in order to be saved, aren't you saying that faith is, is the action that we do to be saved? No. Are you tracking with me? Well, let's back up a little bit. Getting blank stares. The Bible says that we are not saved by works. Right? We, we all agree, we agree on that. We are not saved by works. But then if I turn around and say that you are saved by your faith, is that not a work? No. And let me help you understand why. When we talk about faith, I want you to think in terms of merit and instrument. Okay, merit and instrument. What I am not saying is that faith is the, this is a big word, okay, meritorious, meritorious, meritus, whatever. It's not the, the cause of being saved. We're not saved because our faith merits our salvation. In other words, God doesn't wait to see if you have faith, and when you do, he goes, now I can save him, Right? That's not how it works. It's not the merit by which God saves you. Because think about it. If God waits to save you based on meriting because of your faith, isn't that not you saving yourself by your own works? So it's not meritus. It's not, faith is not part of a meritocracy. Faith is the instrument. And this is what I want you to get. It's the instrument by which we're saved. In other words, think of a pipeline. How is it that we get the stuff from heaven to earth? That we get the forgiveness, the salvation. How do we get that from there to here? It's by faith. It's the instrument by which we receive the salvation that is promised to us when we believe. Okay? So how do we get all this good stuff it is by faith. That's what this woman, this Canaanite woman teaches us. That the grace, the salvation, that which we desire more than anything can be ours when we believe, when we rest, when we trust, when we receive Jesus Christ. And you say, why, why spend so much time trying to to, to make these fine distinctions. Well, number one, it's important because we're talking about the difference between salvation by works and salvation by grace alone. God's kindness alone. But here's the other thing I want you to understand. This changes the way you view the entire Christian life. It changes your assurance if you make faith 
the merit by which you're saved, well then, then what kind of faith? Did you have enough faith? What was the quality of your faith when you had faith? Was your faith good enough? Was it strong enough? Was it thick enough? Was it wide enough? Was it deep enough? That's, that's when you view faith as a merit for salvation. But when you view faith, when you view faith as a pipeline, that means that God saves you. God does everything necessary for you to be saved. And then he gives you that faith. Paul says in Romans 2, I'm not Romans, in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith, and that is a gift. So God has not only made it possible from stuff to get from heaven to earth, but then he gives you the pipeline itself so that when you when you cry out to God, when you say, Lord help me, Lord save me. That pipeline's there. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. There's nothing that you could have done to merit it. God has freely loved you, freely blessed you, freely made the way for you to enjoy all of it. Understand that if faith is the instrument, God has made it possible for you to enjoy Him. And it costs you nothing and it costs Him everything. For you to have God and all His benefits. God says, receive, rest, trust, and it's yours. Now, if that doesn't change the way you view the Christian life, I don't know what will. When you came here this morning, look, some of you might have come here this morning You want to be here, you want to hear from God, but you think, I'm not going to hear from God because God knows the kind of week I've had. God knows the kind of morning I had. Listen, can I tell you something? I have those mornings too. I was in the shower this morning. I got out of the shower. I hear one of my kids singing, I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. Repeatedly, at the top of his lungs. And I'm just thinking, oh my word, it's, it's so crazy in here this morning. And then you, you come and, and we're singing the songs and I'm like, man, my heart, my, my heart is not where it should be. I know it's not where it should be. And, and, and you, get, you get wrapped up in and so focusing on yourself. But Christian, understand this. The moment you believe and rest and trust, all of that good stuff comes down that pipeline into your heart. And it's yours if you will trust and rest and receive. Isn't that good? Whatever week you had, If you're here this morning and you say, Lord Jesus, I trust, I rest, I receive because of who you are and what you've done for me. God sends all of that good stuff, himself and his benefits to you.
That's what God did for you. That's what he accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about all these good things, when we talk about Jesus blessing this Gentile woman, don't see yourself as the disciples. See yourself as the woman, desperate. Desperate, pleading, wanting, desiring. And because of her faith, Jesus says, let it be done for you as you want. Maybe you're here this morning and you know your faith is beaten, it's battered, it's bruised. I want you to know. That kind of faith is still a pipeline that God uses. And maybe you're here this morning and you, you've bought into the idea that you need to keep up the charade, you need to, to keep up the mask, the, the, that, that you have the Christian life all together because that's how you, you make sure God gets those things from heaven to earth, that he looks on your life and he says, oh man, what a good Christian that guy or that woman is and I'm going to bless them, I'm going to give them all sorts of stuff. No. You receive it, you rest in it, and you trust in it. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted. You've never rested. You've never received Jesus and trusted Him as your Lord and as your Savior. I want you to know that what we're talking about this morning is the best news you will ever hear today and in your life. That God so loved the world. He so loved you that He sent His Son that it, whoever believes in him, whoever rests, trusts in this Jesus, will have eternal life. You need to know that you have sinned. You have rebelled against God. And because of that rebellion, you deserve death. But the good news is that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He died on the cross. And on the cross, all the, the judgment and the justice and the wrath... And the righteous anger of God towards sin was poured out on Jesus so that now the offer is for you. Receive and rest. If you rest in Jesus today, you can be saved. You can have a relationship with God. You'll be forgiven of your sins, made a new person, and begin walking, living with the Lord. Whatever it is that you feel like you need to pray, that you need to lift up to the Lord, now is the time to do that. We're going to have a time of invitation, and this will be a time for you to respond as the Lord leads. But if you'd like me to pray for you, I'll be down here at the front. I'll be happy, more than happy. It'll be a pleasure to pray with you, encourage you um, in whatever way I can. But take a moment and respond where you are, and I'll be down here at the front if you need me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the faith that is, Lord, faith being the pipeline, the, the conduit for the blessings of heaven and the, enjoying God, your presence, 
and all your benefits. Lord, we, we've seen in this text this morning that, that the most unworthy person, the most unworthy individual can receive and rest and trust by faith. So Lord, there may be areas where we need to trust. There may be areas where our faith is weak. But Lord, help us to see in your, your great wisdom how you've lavishly blessed us by making it possible for us to receive you and all your benefits by faith. By believing that they are there. God, thank you for your great wisdom that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You take a